What ho, and welcome to Listen to Lillian. That's me, your host Lillian Crawford, freelance film critic and writer with a particular interest in women's relationships with British cinema. This podcast is paired with a Substack newsletter, which you can subscribe to at listentolillian.substack.com, following my research and cinematic adventures. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by writer and programmer So Mayer. They've brought not one, but two films along with them, both directed by women in 1992. Blue Black Permanent by Margaret Tate, and Orlando by Sally Potter. Before we get started, here's an audio taste of the two films. Hi, so how are you? Hi, I'm great. Enjoying the sunshine today. Yeah, it's nice and sunny for once. Um, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? I mean, hopefully they all know who you are already. But um... I prefer to be an international being of mystery. Right. Um, <laughs> I suppose I can reveal that I am a writer. Uh, I'm a bookseller at Burley Fisher Books in London. And I'm part of Queer Feminist Film Curation Collective, club des femmes wonderful um and you when i asked you which film you'd like to do um there was an obvious choice although unfortunately um i had already sort of 
done it before, but I think we're going to be talking about it in in a rather different way. Do you want to introduce that film and your own connection to it? The obvious choice I, I assumed um, would be the one is Sally Potter's film Orlando, the 1992 adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel. I am currently writing a BFI film classics on the film and I have previously written a book called The Cinema of Sally Potter, um, The Politics of Love, uh, which does contain a chapter on Orlando, but this is an amazing opportunity to expand on it using some of the archival materials from the making of the film, which is now 30 years ago. Oh, amazing. Are the archival materials in the BFI archive? They're not. They're currently in um, the director's private archive, but there is an online version of that archive called Spark, S-P-A-R-K, which I helped build. And you can go and see everything from call sheets to rushes to the original contract signed with the mayor of the town in Uzbekistan, where the Uzbek scenes were filmed, which was signed on a napkin with a vodka drinking ceremony, very much like the scene with the Khan in the film in the desert so yeah a real like film school out of the box and a real gossipy treat with some wonderful pictures um of the star Tilda Swinton uh and many of the other performers as well like Quentin Crisp and Jimmy Somerville so it's just it's a gay delight Wonderful. The the archival material itself. The, the archival material. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Well, <laughs> hopefully I, I, the book I will be a gay a gay delight yeah. as well. <laughs> well, I can't wait. It's very exciting. Um, Thanks, and then because I said that I'd sort of done it before, and I, I mean I could talk about Orlando forever, so um, I'm sure that we'll we'll get onto it as well. But um, I also asked if you fancied doing another film to supplement it. Um, so you've chosen another film from 1992. Um, would you like to set that one up for us as well? It's an amazing coincidence that this film uh, is also from 1992. It's also uh, about a poet. Um, although in this case, it's the only fiction feature film that was made by a very prolific uh, Orcadian filmmaker, the amazing Margaret Tate, who made hundreds of short films throughout her life uh sometimes literally throughout her life she would work on them for decades and when she was in her early 70s she was given the opportunity to uh, make a feature to pitch feature um by uh the bfi uh and she made this incredible film called blue black permanent but whereas Orlando at least reached some art house cinemas and I actually saw it on its first release because I'm very old. I didn't come across Blue Black Permanent until about 15, 16 years ago when there was a touring program of her short films and Blue Black Permanent put together by Peter Todd, uh, who'd screened her films in the 70s and 80s at the NFT in his amazing film, poem, poem, film, all one word program uh and i was in toronto at the time and that's where uh i saw this film from uh shot in orkney and edinburgh and it just absolutely blew me away and i became obsessed with it and now we're lucky enough to have it on dvd and blu-ray so more people can see it yeah absolutely i think that's how i first saw it i think i um 
I think I might have won a blue the blue ray in a quiz at some point. <laughs> it was my my prize. So um, that's how I first saw um, Blue Black Permanent, and it's um, yeah, it's it's really extraordinary. But I've been I've been aware of Orlando for quite a lot longer. Um, I'm trying to remember when I must have first first seen it. I think it might have even been through Mubi when Mubi sort of started. I'm I'm not I'm not sure. So it was it was later than perhaps I'd. I'd like I'd have liked it to have been I think if I'd seen it when I was a teenager it might have um it would have had a very sort of profound impact in the way that Derek Jarman's films did because my mm. my grandmother is a big Jarman fan and introduced me to to his films um which um as I said earlier um sort of the connection between Jarman's films and his style and Orlando for me is quite clear that they they do seem maybe it's Tilda Swinton's presence but there is something sort of um that that ties them together is is that the case i mean sh- sh- perhaps it would be a good way to talk about sort of what sally what point sally potter's at how her career has sort of um mm. developed to this point and then we can contrast it to to margaret tate which is a very different um sort of a filmmaker at the start of their career and and a filmmaker at the end of hers first of all i'm quite jealous because my grandma was a clint eastwood fan Okay. So my childhood cinematic <laughs> education was was quite different. I got in quite a lot of trouble in the playground for quoting Clint inappropriately. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the most magical uh, archival assets that I came across while I was researching the cinema of Sally Potter was a cassette tape in the old BFI library, which was in BFI Stephen Street on the ground floor. And it was a recording of an NFT on stage. They, I think they were called masterclasses in those days. And it was, um, I think it was a screening of Wittgenstein. And after the screening, uh, it was Sally interviewing Derek Jarman about his filmmaking. You know, this we're towards the end of his oeuvre at this point. It's the last film he'll make before Blue. Um, this incredibly beautiful, intellectual, naughty film about questions of becoming and identity and language. And at the end of the conversation, um, Derek gives Sally a first edition of Orlando. It's almost like, you know, a proposal on stage at the Super yeah. Bowl or something. She's been working on developing the film for several years. And it's it does feel like both a gift between friends and a sort of handing on of the, the torch mm-hmm. to say, keep going this practice of queering history, of challenging ideas of Britishness, of challenging ideas of gender and class, um, of using costume in this as a gay delight and yeah. using music um, to sound out, you know, the extraordinary existence of our fluid bodies. And, you know, there's obviously a sort of erotic connection when you hear a conversation between two figures in history. It's like there's so many plays that are about that, oh, this meeting of X and Y, but it it felt so friendly. There wasn't any overt stagey significance about it, but it also felt very a conscientious or yeah, a conscious gesture mm-hmm. as well as conscientious between two filmmakers who are so conscious of of gesture of the history of our of the history of influence. Um so a lot of people think of Orlando as being Sally's first feature. Mm-hmm. And it was uh a 
a very successful film. Um, it sort of broke the box office in Australia. Um, it was distributed by a tiny company that was literally called Ronin Films that had a small number of independent cinemas and it became this huge word of mouth success where it was on screens for like nearly a year. Um, and partially because of the amazing Tilda Swinton, it got a lot of major magazine coverage and became a real success in America as well, to the point that there are news articles calling the emerging athleisure trend at that time Orlando leggings and claiming that people assigned female at birth are wearing leggings at that time because of the influence of Orlando. <laughs> An excuse for lots of pictures of Tilda Swinton's legs. <laughs> so it's, I wasn't really aware of its kind of international reputation at the time. I just like went to see it with my friends at the cinema. I also had no idea who Sally Potter was because, um, her first feature film, made in 1983, The Gold Diggers, starring Julie Christie and Colette Lafont. It's an incredible feminist Marxist musical shot in black and white with a, a looping time travel narrative, uh, which I think we'll talk about with Orlando and Blue Black Permanent mm. as well. I think it's a very deep influence on David Lynch. Um, right. Watch The Gold Diggers, then rewatch um, Mulholland Drive, and you'll be like, <gasps> Silencio. <laughs> You stole it. Um, fight me. The reception. <laughs> I believe you. This... That's, that, I can see it. <laughs> oh, I, you know, listeners can fight me. Um, <laughs> the reception of this, uh, feminist queer film that has like an anti empire song in it. And we're talking like the height of, you know, this just after Thatcher's second election victory was as stinking and misogynist and racist as you can imagine, from the British press. And so The Gold Diggers was, which was at that time, the, the film with the highest budget made by women in the UK. Yeah. Um, and it had been written, directed and produced by Collective, uh, Sally with her collaborators, Lindsay Cooper and Rose English. Um, the whole crew was women. Everyone was paid the same rate from the spark to Julie Christie, who instantly said she loved it. She felt that it was a great relief after doing all these stressful Hollywood films. Right. Um, yeah. It was withdrawn from circulation and it became a real struggle for Sally, uh, who was seen as someone who had made a great disgrace when in fact what had happened, she endured mm -hmm. a great disgrace from the treatment of the film um so a really long struggle back to getting people to give funding for the film um so while as you said you know we have someone who was at the beginning of the career or seems to be at the beginning of the career and like a lot of american press in particular represents orlando as a first film as if sally hadn't started making films in the mid 70s um and margaret tate at the end of her career it would be the last completed film she'd make what we really have is like two filmmakers who are both fighting their way mm -hmm. through a misogynist classist british filmmaking system both of them very attracted to making short films experimental short films that incorporate music dance poetry not your usual calling card type yeah. films um and that so the coincidence of them meeting with their features in 1992-93 
amplified by the fact that the original casting for Greta in Blue Black Permanent was Tilda Swinton, right. who is said to be the spitting image of Anne Scott Moncrief, uh, one of the poets uh, in Tate's uh, circle, who uh, is one of the bases for that main character. Um, I think it just it tells you a lot about British independent film, yeah. what filmmakers were up against, and what was happening in this. Not, I mean, there's nothing magic about it. There was funding uh, through the BFI Production Board from the you know late sixties through to the mid eighties. That was specifically to support filmmakers who were working in different ways and then a channel four through the actt workshop declaration took over that baton in a sense from the early 80s channel four specifically had this remit to support underrepresented filmmakers and not just support them with exposure to ensure they could get paid because up till that point you could not get paid um to work on independent films you couldn't you had to be in a union and working on union productions so it was, and it's amazing, uh, as, as Margot Hawkins said at, at the screening of her film Hushabye Baby, which is a Northern Irish film from 1990 this weekend at the Rio. It's amazing this happened under Thatcher, the, the production board and then Channel 4. But it tells you how urgent it was, what people were fighting against, what they, right. you know, the kind of yeah. chariots of fireification uh, of British cinema. Mm. So there was never a lot of money, but there was just enough just enough wiggle room just enough people who'd come through the 60s and 70s who were fighting for a cinema that was artistically different politically different and then yes you get blue black permanent and orlando within the same year absolutely um and they make watching them together um was just such an extraordinary experience i mean the the, this is sort of an ideal double bill almost there's so many overlapping ideas and themes that the poetry that comes out in both of them these sorts of multi-generational portraits of of women are just so beautiful and so gorgeous it really was sort of um a bit of a special treat to sort of put these two together um in in preparation for for this podcast um one of the let's make it happen yeah no let's get people into a cinema together yeah i think so um, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask about Margaret Tate, which I wasn't 100% sure of, was how much she had sort of tried to make a feature film before this point. Um, because I know that she was going to make, she hoped to make a sequel to, to Blue Back Permanent afterwards. Um, had, was this the first feature that she tried, she wanted to make, or had it been in production for a long time? Do, do you know? <laughs> Uh, I can tell you a little bit. Uh, so for people who haven't come across Margaret Tate before, which is, as you can, <laughs> as you've probably I'm worked sure. <laughs> out, understandable. Um, Margaret, uh, Tate, uh, studied medicine, uh, in Edinburgh before the Second World War. And then she, um, served as an army medic in what's now Sri Lanka and Burma. Um, and then ended the war in Italy, where she attended, and I always, this is, I find this so hard to say, but I'm going to have a go. It's, it's a hard one to pronounce, yeah. <laughs> Centro Sperimentale di Fotografia. Va bene! Okay. I which like <laughs> was a, a film school that had, was a sort of hot, radical hotbed that had run during the war, 
um, you know, during fascism, keeping kind of the motor of Italian non-fascist cinema turning. So she had this amazing um, transformative experience. People came, there were people there from all over the world uh, studying cinema. And she bonded very deeply with a number of other young filmmakers and always considered herself an international filmmaker, someone who was going to link Orkney and Edinburgh to Rome and New York, which was what the um, the business club, <laughs> her film company, Ancona Films, read. Um, Edinburgh, New York, Rome. Like an amazingly international vision, um, if you think about 50s British cinema. Mm. She did, when she came back um, to Britain, get to know Lindsay Anderson Mm -hmm. uh, just before the founding or development of the free cinema movement, which included the Italian filmmaker Lorena Mazzetti, Mm -hmm. who I think we're now considering the first woman to make an independent film in Britain. Right, yes, yeah. Um, Our archival research is always turning up exactly new, new material we, we believe her to be at least we believe her to be and again an incredible writer uh, as well as filmmaker fiction mm. writer and a non-fiction writer so tate really early was talking to lindsay anderson and she had a number of draft um fiction feature film scripts that she was shopping around what there was then of the the remaining old British studio system, most of which, as far as we know, as far as Sarah Neely's research shows, were based on her wartime experiences, including one based on a novel she wrote called The Lily White Boys about a transit camp for injured um, British Commonwealth soldiers in Burma. And she was told, oh, there's no appetite for this stuff. Oh, the war's been done. So it's you could have had a a filmmaker informed by the ideas that were informing Rossellini and Pasolini (laughs) making anti-war or un-war films at the time when you know the David Lean epics were were happening right but she you know she was there she was in the mix and Lindsay Anderson was you know carried on saying to her you have to come back down to London and she said why why should I why is London the center of the universe she then also had a bit of a tangle with John Grierson, the so-called mm. daddy of a yeah, documentary yeah. and certainly of Scottish film, who didn't like how poetic her films were and said, you know, she should edit them to be, as she said, more tack, 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 tack. So she was always trying. She was she wanted to see more investment in, in Scottish cinema. She was always yeah. writing to local government um say have you thought about something scottish filmmakers are still doing have you thought about investing in filmmaking facilities in scotland have you thought about a film festival in scotland she did her own screenings during the edinburgh festival in her rose street studio uh and apparently kids would run down the streets saying you know is there going to be films missus but the critics who came up from london she said couldn't she didn't didn't get her films and she said it's as if they had difficulty understanding anything straightforward and clear. Doesn't sound like anyone I've ever come across. Um, so she was making these beautiful short films. She famously made a film with the poet Hugh McDermott. She made a yeah. film with a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem called The Leaden Echo and The Golden Echo. Um, and then, you know, she moved back to Orkney. And at that point, 
in British film senses, she was further away from the center of everything. To her heart, yeah. she was closer to the center of everything. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and she certainly made an Orcadian cinema, um, mm. which will believe Black Permanent moves between Edinburgh and Orkney. Um, so this wasn't a film that I don't think had been in development in that sense for a long time. It was uh, an idea, uh, Greta Stevenson, who plays Gerda, says for her this the idea comes out of a short story that margaret tate wrote that's in one of one of her self-published books um the book she self-published for children um it has the film has a lovely the short story has the lovely title pinky rock pools that's gorgeous isn't it from um the grassy stories uh and it has all this imagery of anemones that really relates to that central scene in the film of gerda's mother on the beach in the cave with her grandparents um which is sort of the primal memory of the film Mm. um so her films as i said even her short films would sometimes develop over decades she she was an additive filmmaker a sort of diary filmmaker who would edit and re-edit and re-edit and re-edit bringing in new images until she felt she had a whole um and then adding sound um so blue black permanent was made in a much more conventional way there are actually pictures of her on the beach in her director's chair in her 70s uh, which you can imagine Agnes Varda looking at and saying right that's what I'm gonna do on yeah. the beach <laughs> um I don't know if they ever met uh blue black permanent came out at the time when Varda was not in the film world after the right. death of Jacques Demy but mm. in my head I like to think that they do. No, yeah, I can see that. I can see that sort of overlap between them and, and particularly with sort of Varda's later films when she's getting to that age as well. That sort of, I mean, Le Plage d'Agnès and um, in Varda by Agnès where she sort of sends these these scenes sort of sat on the beach reflecting mm. on her her life. Um, and I suppose, yeah, that... Maybe that must come from Margaret Tate because it, it seems it seems so so intimately yeah. tied to her, um, and I can see her films, particularly her short films, being very sort of connected to to Varda's own um, shorts and sort of the interest in in the minutiae of nature that you see in these co- these coastlines, which are some absolutely gorgeous shots within Blue Black Permanent. And I think that's what was so striking, having seen quite a few of her short films not all of them I, I must confess but um I because uh, there's so many of them um, but, none of uh, us have seen all of them no one has seen all of them but <laughs> I've seen quite a few um and I, I love that those elements of what those sort of because they, they do feel like small poems um then coming into the feature film as well um and I think you can see I mean we can talk about the the influence of this of this film quite a lot I mean there's two in films in particular that I, I would think of but one that I was thinking yesterday re-watching it um for the first time since I've seen Ammonite was how much of Ammonite is sort of taking seems to be taking from 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 this film and what um Francis Lee is sort of using in those those kind of I suppose pillow shots might be the best way to describe them I mean there is a certain sort of Ozu-esque idea to 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 using them to punctuate the narrative um to give a pause which so many films don't don't necessarily do um yeah if you want to comment on that before i sort of <laughs> i might save the 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 sort of 
the legacy of the film for later. I don't know. Um, okay. It seems like a bad oh, time I'm, to talk about it now. <laughs> I'm really intrigued. I mean, I think rather than saying, oh, yes, Blue Black Permanent is a direct influence on Ammonite, although right. I'm sure yeah. Francis Lee, you know, lined up, give me all the films about the, yeah. <laughs> you know, coastline of the of the British Isles, uh, you know, and when you see, if you've seen Penny Wilcox's sort of supercar archive documentary from the sea to the land beyond, you see yeah. just how important um, the sea and the coastline has been uh, in British cinema and television. Um, and I think part of what we're saying is not very many British filmmakers express the the influence of European cinema. Mm -hmm. And the Lee and Tate are both expressing the influence of filmmakers, you know, as you say, Ozu, but also I think the Italian neorealists in particular of having those moments of pause attention to minutiae making films that have the rhythm of the place that they're in um every you know people think a lot about the italian neorealists as as very urban filmmakers but a film like la tierra trema um shows their deep you know involvement in and attachment to the disappearing uh rural rhythms of, of life in regional Italy as well. And I think that made a deep impression on Tate. And I think so much of British cinema is driven by financing to look like mm-hmm. Hollywood cinema that it's it's really salutary to to feel those those rhythms. And I think you know Derek Drummond and Sally Potter also fit in that category of what we could call art cinema mm. um filmmakers um for sally particularly the influence of soviet uh filmmakers and she actually made a documentary about um called i am an ox i am a horse i am a man i am a woman women in um russian cinema which you can see or soviet cinema which you can see on her website mm. um which was a product of archival research in moscow and st petersburg during glasnost and that deep dive is um you know i think is in some ways parallel to tate's experience of being in the crucible of italian cinema in the Mm. 50s you know not many british directors are having those transnational (laughs) um non-hollywood uh informed experiences Mm. uh and it's really it's really palpable yeah no definitely um and the the way that those those European influences sort of then becoming something very specifically Scottish and Orcadian, as, as as you say, which um the the two filmmakers I think of um I think in particular this this um this nightclub scene that appears in in Blue Black Permanent, which which is very much in my head sort of connected to Lynn Ramsey's Morphin Color and most recently to Charlotte Wells' um, After Sun, which in one as as shot in after sun which seems to um have captured a lot of people um and certainly captured my attention when i was watching it is that there's a pile of books next to a television and you've got um margaret tate's collection of um stories and poems and, and writings and um i seeing these connections to to a scottish cinema to these later mm-hmm. scottish filmmakers um really ties into that sort of handing down that the film is about and and that Orlando is also um mm. about in 
particularly the ending of Orlando when um, Sally Potter changes the ending and we have um, Orlando's daughter with the the, the film camera. Um, I just I just find that sort of legacy really really rather beautiful. Um, you can probably think of many more examples, but those are the two that I sort of had in my I mean, mind when I was watching it. That nightclub or the the party scene uh, and then the nightclub scene in Morven Color have been so influential. Like for a mm. time in the mid two thousands, there was not a film with Samantha Morton in it that didn't feel it right. had to like <laughs> forty nine to that. You know, it was so iconic to to link that to that you know really very beautiful very sweet very rhythmic scene in in blue black permanent where margaret is mm. <laughs> going i'm down with the kids right you know uh so one of her very early short films although it took her a long time to, to complete it was a film called calypso which she made literally only a few years after the empire windrush landed um in tilbury so mm. Um, and it has calypso music and it's, it's dancing, it's scratch animation of dancing figures, painted scratch animation of dancing yeah. figures. So she's someone who, you know, we think of Orkney as, uh, you know, there's a, there's a real English tendency to colonially primitivize the, the Celtic nations and the further away they are to, to think of them in that way. But she was, um, thinking in a far more inclusive internationalist, anti-racist aesthetically radical way than many filmmakers who thought they were in the swing of it uh in london at the time and so i love the cheek the cheekiness of that nightclub scene of being like yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 73 and i you know what i love a banger yeah, <laughs> and the light no, the lighting in it is you know maybe it was not... the lighting that i was thinking of specifically mm, in relation to yeah to, to it's the, not to just that moments. typical yeah rotating 80s hectic lighting it yeah it produces kind of oceanic Mm. effects that you know stimulate barbara's memory and so that's the other thing we should say we've mentioned greta the character played by gerda stevenson but um barbara was played by celia imry yeah who in you know in some ways was the bankable name right of course and she's a an artist living in 80s 90s Edinburgh visual artist uh and through the film she is recovering this story of her mother which she's telling to her partner uh who she's not married to as Tate never married her lifelong lover uh Alex Pyrie um who they live together they live separately you know they had a very deeply creative and supportive relationship which is incorrect from the 60s onwards an incredible story also um and so Barbara is, you know, having an exhibition and she's, it's sending her back to think about her mother, Greta, who was a poet, um, who uh, moved to Edinburgh. That's where the, fa- the family lived, but went back to Orkney um, to visit her father. And, you know, the the film is very much about implication. It's like a child's understanding of what's happening, right. that her mother couldn't bring herself to come back to Edinburgh and to kind of bourgeois, heteronormative family life and and the city when she's so deeply attached to place uh, and community and her, her father is unwell. Um, and we're getting away from the film's influence on other films but 
I think your point about right. after sun is a really good one because we actually don't know what blue black permanence influence is going to be yet. Of course. So only been on DVD um, for five years. Mm. So um, since Tate, the anniversary of Tate's hundredth birthday, she was born on Armistice Day, eleven eleven, nineteen eighteen, and so I think it's a question for like the next five to ten years. But there's still only maybe two dozen um, right. Scottish filmmakers of marginalised genders. So mm. I think that genealogy is being literally constructed uh, wow. as we speak, and the. Yeah enormous and deserved success of after sun mm. i think is partially because of its heart you know really heartfelt very cleverly placed um tribute to genealogy of of women filmmakers including tate and and lynn ramsey and that 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 film is now being seen all over the world and hopefully people will go oh what is that what is yeah. that book pause button right no, definitely yeah um and and also i mean the the ending the way the camera sort of pans round was very much like um en chambre by Chantal Ackerman and there were or um e- even sort of Laura Mulvey's um riddles of the sphinx i kept thinking about sort of watching the film and i you get the, the western impact. camera precisely yeah you know the term i don't <laughs> so um i i i merely watch these things um <laughs> i yeah i i suppose i was i was sort of seeing what well, i, I I was talking, I've talked to some people who said that th- these, like, these things sort of made it feel very much like a first film. But to me, it just felt like Charlotte Wells was very much sort of in touch with her influences and the films that, um, that she is sort of pulling from, but creating something completely original. And with those films as well, with Morphin Color and, and with After Sun, there is this sort of imagery of returning to the sea and these scenes on, on the coast and the use of the ocean and the sort of, the threat of it almost um as as a sort of existentialist idea that that comes comes about in in those films and the ties to family that can that can complicate that existentialism um i think is just really fascinating and 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 as you say the fact that blue black permanent is a film made in 1992 but actually we're now seeing it in a different way because it's it's more available and more people are aware of margaret tate and will hopefully continue to do so um that we are seeing these 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 connections um one of the other films that i was thinking about was ennis main the new mark jenkins film particularly with the shot of the flowers the small um i don't know what type of flowers they are i'm not a botanist um the small pink flowers okay um, oh the, the, in um in blue black permanent or in, in blue black permanent they're, they're, I know this because, um, <laughs> Greta Steven, Gerda Stevenson helpfully identifies them. So who, um, had spent time in Orkney. They're the Primula scotica, which only grow, uh, in very limited coastal regions. Yeah. Uh, of the very north of Scotland. And the, so they're highlands and islands, specifically coastal flowers. And the island in the film is never named. Um, mm. Greta never says, oh, I'm going back to Orkney. It's just the island. But that flower is, you know, most common. It's very rare, but it's most common on Orkney. Mm. So it's sort of like a little signature in the film. I think that's very similar to what Jenkin is doing in in Ennismane with the flowers and that. Have you seen it? 
I haven't actually seen it yet. Okay. I, I recommend you do so. Um, it's again, it's sort of an unnamed Cornish island um, with um, Mer- Mary Woodvine sort of going around and um, the coastal area, and and it has all of these sorts of like the the radio playing the BBC Home Service, that kind of thing, and these these the the pips aligning with the ch- with the chiming of the church bells at that moment, mm. and um, the clock ticking, and these sorts of onyeric. Bergman-esque scenes, I suppose, that almost with Celia Emery saying that she's she's able to fly, and um, they're just absolutely stunning. But it, it, it I, I think that that perhaps that's what Ennis Main's coming out of. We won't talk about it too much if you um, haven't seen it. But um, I just, I think that that sort of, I mean, Ennis Main's been talked a lot about as a folk horror, and I suppose the idea really is that the folk aspect that these are folk films and there there is a folk tradition of sort of um specific times and places in Britain capturing a landscape and capturing mm. um which um I, I I suppose is tied to in in British cinema anyway but prior to um Blue Black Permanent that this it's sort of um there is a horror aspect in in i mean i'm thinking in particular of the wicker man of, of sort of you know going to these places and everyone being really strange and parochial and this sort of fear of the um of of, of people from these places who aren't as you were saying earlier sort of tied to the more urban centers places like like london um yeah i don't know if there's anything in that yeah <laughs> i i that those um incomer films and again this kind of colonial primitivization this horror of rural continuities uh and regional communities it's i hate to be so boring and like banging on about this it's tied to funding structures of british film exactly what margaret tate was complaining about to lindsay anderson that if there's only funding and facilities for filmmaking in london and the southeast then uh and that's where directors have to come whether they're British directors or you know directors who are coming like Antonioni coming from other countries then the eye on the world outside London will not have any respect for the traditions there those traditions will be a historicized they'll um yeah be interpreted uh as horror and the interesting thing with a uh, really powerful thing with Mark Jenkins work is that it's inverting that mm-hmm. and while it's you know maintaining the uncanny it is doing it from within the local tradition and all of Tate's um published fiction uh, in her two collections, uh, one for adults and one one for children, is about that. And there's a number of really funny stories about incomers. So there's one about a musicologist who comes to the island to record folk music. And so he gets taken to a bar where there's a lot of older people. And he's, they sing him songs. And at the end he says, well, that one's not folk music. That's a pop record. And, you know, you just heard it off the radio. And one of them says, well if I sing it, it's folk music, you know, right. don't try and trap us in the past, but also they don't sing him their best songs mm. because they know very well that he's just going to profit off them. So right. that, yeah. that negotiation of I'm making a film in Orkney, that's not about Orkney. It's not kind of a tourist board 
film and you know tate was approached by the scottish and orkney tourist board to make a film she made a short series a series of shorts called aspects of kirkwall um which are about things like people driving tractors there's one where she gets some of the the signs against nuclear power in the windows of kirkwall buildings in you know she was an absolute holy terror you know no compromise Mm. No producing tack, tack, tack prettifications that meet the John Grierson, you know, white people's colonial gaze at all. That's not what she was interested in. It was storytelling um, from the inside. And I mean, veering, making a wild segue. (laughs) For me, you know, seeing Orlando when I was like 14, it felt like the first, one of the first times I'd seen a film from the inside about gender and sexuality i mean i you know section 28 had come in four years earlier and you know obviously derek drama and jimmy somerville were part of famously photographed at the protests and 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 sally was there as well um though not famous enough to get arrested um on camera uh so making this film was pretty daring because you know it's not like Orlando was being taught in schools or Virginia Woolf as a as a queer person was being talked about in the curriculum um and the film just you know picks up British history from the inside and says well it it was queer it was feminist um we have to you know start decolonizing it and the film is still really remarkable for having in a sense, that in that insider perspective of those conversations that have been happening but hadn't translated into right. mainstream British fiction film. Like they're they're all over the experimental cinema of the 70s and 80s uh and early 90s. But to have it in that narrative film, you could see it at your local cinema. And similarly with Blue Black Permanent, this, you know, it's Tate was the first Scottish woman to make a funded feature-length fiction film mm. in 1992. That's like it's really hard to wrap your brain around that. Yeah, you know. So two Northern Irish women, Pat Murphy and Margot Harkin, had made features at least, but Tate was the first Scottish woman. It, it you know, it the the sort of arrogance of the centralized industry to assume yeah. that all the stories that are worth telling and could be told right. are coming from there and flying outwards and as you say then constructing this oh well, i went there for holiday and it was you know a bit unnerving and i came back yeah. um rather than listening to the you know evolving traditions of storytelling that were present uh in those places it's it's really shocking and and the the kind of incredible skill and confidence of Blue Black Permanent, I think people often a bit patronising to it, like, oh, it's the first film by a little old lady. Oh, there must have been lots of hand-holding, you know, uh, as if Tate hadn't spent her life making films, watching films, supporting other people to try and make films, talking to filmmakers like Lindsay Anderson, um, and also being immersed in in a home storytelling tradition, um and it just it shy you know i really hear what you say about people say oh often feels like first film like well why not yeah you know what's wrong with that energy of something that's a first film that's trying to encompass everything in its Precisely. world yeah. and that's you know how that film feels to me it's just like running towards you with everything in its arms mm. it's exhilarating um and yeah. blue black permanent 
has that as well, but also tempered by a lifetime mm. of, of making films and, you know, as a GP also of listening to people, listening to people's stories. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that level of that sort of criticism about a first feature is one that seems to be played against women more than um, men. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's yeah. another podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um but it is it is extraordinary, isn't it, to sort of think of a, a first feature being I mean, I forget how old Charlotte Wells is, but she's she's rather young, um, by by contrast to a first feature made by, as you say, a seventy three year old woman. Um, that there there is something something very different there. And I suppose that's that's partly what's so fascinating at looking at Margaret Tate next to Sally Potter here is 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 that there is this this age difference between mm-hmm. them and I mean I don't want I don't no, we've talked a bit about Sally Potter's sort of experience with the film industry at that point. Um, but I suppose it's also really important to remember what happens after this because Sally Potter's career is never sort of at the same level after this. I mean, I, I always think of Jean de Lackerman sort of saying that she hates that she made Jean Dillman so early in her career because she spent the rest of her career struggling to sort of get the same attention to, to, uh, later mm. works is that the case for sally potter do you do you think i think um women filmmakers get tokenized by one mm. film even when they get to make more right. films and it can happen in all sorts of different ways so for example judy dash um makes a medium-length film uh illusions yeah. and then daughters of the dust yeah. um and then goes on to have a career working in what's called industrial cinema making films for museums businesses television um but is regarded as having only made one fiction feature film so part yeah. one of the things that happens is the fiction feature film is the you know the be all and end all it's seen when it's given to people from previously underrepresented communities getting to make a fiction feature film is like the prize in itself like congratulations you're done move on Mm -hmm. um and you know i think vada had a similar experience with cleo although she Mm -hmm. you know continued working for another 60 years (laughs) 60 years um uh, you know, and both Adan and Ackerman uh, moved into making installations uh, in the same way someone like Isaac Julian uh, has done, who, yeah. you know, made um, Young Soul Rebels and then Looking for Langston. And then yeah. everyone's like, well, you've had your prize. Yeah. Um, so Sally, you know, like uh, Vardan and, and Ackerman went on making features uh, with significant gaps between them so that's part also part of what happens is the struggle to raise funding um and even in the career of someone like Celine Siama you can see that it's you know five films between 2007 and 2021 like if you compare that to the work rate of a Xavier Dolan or you know um it's like congratulations you won all these prizes you're very successful we're still going to force you to prove yourself and often it's about it's filmmakers who are very committed to their way of working which is often a way that's ethical it's responsible it's like i want time to write and develop i want time to work with my cost and crew i don't want to you know make something in a compressed really compressed period of time so for the most part sally potter continues making independent films through her production company adventure pictures um after orlando she makes a film called a tango lesson which while not being 
especially like let's say considered a classic in Britain is like revered around the world and it's like you know was a hugely important film when it screened in um, Plata del Mar in Argentina Um, it's a film that's partially shot in Buenos Aires and is about reparation and reconciliation you know uh, time when Argentina was emerging from uh, the dictatorship Um, and then you know sort of on the international success of that film gets to make a historical drama with working title mm. um, called The Man Who Cried with Alo stars, Kate Blanchett, um, Christina Ricci, uh, in a, a really fabulous role uh, as a young uh, Jewish woman who travels from Russia to Britain um, ahead of pogroms and then from Britain to France and is in France when the Nazis, in Paris when the Nazis evade, working as a showgirl. Uh, with Kate Blanchett, who is also a showgirl, um, the greatest showgirl ever to be on screen, uh, and Johnny Depp and John Turturro uh, uh, are in it as well. And less good you know, showgirls. Sorry, they are also yes. I, they are I showgirls. Said less good, I said less good showgirls. They are they are less good showgirls, but they are yeah. they are absolutely <laughs> showgirls. Um, in fact, Depp <laughs> is kind of a show pony, shall we say? Uh, the you know, just like literally a, f- a few days before going into production, working title said you have to cut like 20% of the scenes and cut this much off your budget and restructure yeah. overnight. Um, and so I don't know what choices uh, Charlotte Wells is going to make. I hope she has, you know, the same ways of working and money pouring right. towards her that Francis Lee and Mark Jenkins have had to like continue working the way that she wants to work, like the right. incredible trust with actors that she builds. Um and I think, you know, the, the British industry is in a different place now with its understanding of like just how important independent cinema is to defining the re- reputation of British cinema around the world. Yeah. That doesn't mean there's much more money for it you know it's all still Mm. inward investment for making american tv um but yeah i you know i've been doing this research on orlando learning things that just you know like singe your eyebrows like there are only 10 prints of orlando distributed in the uk on first release there were 40 in italy okay (laughs) <laughs> but only 10 in That's the UK really, yeah. after it had already <laughs> been successful in Australia and yeah. the US and you know being like this cause celebre at Venice and Toronto yeah. so some, something that people said about Jarman Derek Jarman a lot um, who was you know had this very regular relationship with the Venice Film Festival was you know that thing about profits mm-hmm. not being heard in their own country really applied to to British visionary filmmakers and both Jarman and Potter are people who have you know enormous reputations around the world and who have lent a luster to the reputation of British cinema Mm -hmm. as Francis Lee and Mark Jenkins and Charlotte Wells uh, and Isaac Julian uh, you know have done and are doing while Mm -hmm. in their own country they are not as valued as like you know i was i got to be at a screening the first ever screening of the gold diggers in korea at the seoul international women's film festival in 2017 um so the film had been withdrawn in the uk and it wasn't shown in south korea because uh, of the military government at the time right um and there were 
there was uh, a woman in the audience who came up to me at the end uh, in tears. So uh, Sally couldn't be there. So I'd just been asked to say a few words about the film, which obviously an incredible honor, but I, you know, I didn't make it. And she said, please, can you tell the director that I've had a, sh- a shrine for 30 years where I've been waiting to see this film because I've read about how important it is. And I just knew how much it would tell me about my relationship with my mother and like the kind of cause. So people in the audience are making these incredible observations. I've never heard in a British screening about kind of how the film is working on this cosmic level, on this geological level, you know, how it's thinking about, you know, the powers of creation Mm. um, expressed through this allegorical story. And it was just, you know, you realize cinema really is, you know, a global language and global medium as well as a global marketplace. And I think Britain is just so cringe. Like we're so cringe about people who have vision and right. talent that doesn't Absolutely. fit the like industrial. Yeah. Well, I mean, that I suppose it makes sense I mean, if we're talking about Orlando. Um but for that to follow in the same way that Virginia Woolf's works have been treated in this country. Sure. Um, I mean, the fact that I, I mentioned to you before we did this, that um, I'd seen the Neil Bartlett play based on Orlando, which is just, which has um, been at the Garrick in London, um, directed by Michael Grandage. And it's extraordinary how much Bartlett misunderstands that novel um and what that novel's doing i mean you mentioned the fact that they sort of have this pantomime gesture where they say ladies and ge- ladies and gentlemen and everyone every single time i mean it's multiple times throughout mm. the play um and it has this sort of comical dresser who follows orlando through time um and this co- and all of the supporting cast of this chorus of virginia wolfs and um i interviewed Michael Grandage recently and he he said that oh it was it was it was our idea to have like all of these people representing the various sort of facets of Virginia Woolf's identity um which I just found absolutely baffling I just the, the idea that part of Virginia Woolf's identity is that is a like multiple sort of um ethnic backgrounds and um a really bizarre concept I just couldn't mm. get my head around what the point of that was and I suppose it's this mythologizing of Virginia Woolf that is happening at an increasingly rapid rate um and the idea that this play is trying to say something about gender as if it's new as if this is something that's only just started Mm. to exist that I find absolutely bizarre and I think that that while while Orlando the film can't quite capture the same nuance of the novel and I am just there's all sorts of reasons why that is I mean partly just to do with the medium I think that it does it it does it in a in a way which which is a lot more subtle that that treats it with the same sort of objectivity that Mm. the novel treats Orlando's sex across the the story um how, how do you feel about that and how we sort of how it's being framed now, how people are sort of interpreting Orlando in the wake of the absolute hysteria that we sort of experience <laughs> at the moment. I mean, I want to give a shout out to um, Orlando the Drag King for right. um, 
performing exactly fashion Mm. in in both senses of that word that you know we use it colloquially to mean you know what I'm wearing today and then I'm gonna look at tomorrow and be like oh my god how did I ever put that on (laughs) and you know what what Stephen Greenblatt drops some heavy names here called (laughs) self-fashioning so this idea that he says begins in the renaissance and begins with Shakespeare and you know that Wolf is like you know, absolutely nails by saying, starting the book in the Renaissance. I mean, that's just a coincidence. That's like just when the yeah, Sackville Wests mm. um, took over uh, a knoll, were granted knoll by royal yeah. fire. And I'll come back to them in a minute. Side eye. Um, you know, this this first time that people have mirrors, they have portraits um, they have, you know, the wealthy, they have, they can change their clothes all the time. And it's not just, mm-hmm. oh, you have to wear what the king tells you. So this idea that you're sort of making yourself through these declarations of taste in clothing, in literature, in art, in architecture, um, is really the theme of the novel. You know, Wolf is writing back to her father's work as a biographer um leslie stevens who wrote eminent uh victorians and if you sort of trace through her career as as a novelist and as a non-fiction writer she's always asking herself the question what is a biography mm. what is a life what does it actually tell you you know her father's like oh the spirit of the age and orlando is this huge joke about the spirit of the age capital s capital a uh and one of the things that happens at the end of orlando which does change the ending um and shows Orlando going why the fuck would I want to own a property associated with like colonialism and bloodshed you can have it it's your problem now national trust um is the spirit of the age is literally embodied uh in the brilliant um Jimmy Somerville Mm. uh in a pair of extremely short shorts and angel wings looking like he literally just flew in from heaven the nightclub (laughs) favorite gags um (laughs) it's good it's good uh on some wires in a tree singing uh, a brilliant song uh, that, that Sally wrote um, <laughs> about defying the idea of linear history, defying the idea that we have to live by the tra- traditions of our ancestors. Not that we can uh-huh. cut ourselves off completely. We have to be critical of them. And I think that's that's really important for me in seeing, like, how do we respond to Wolf and Orlando now? This is a novel that begins with Orlando swinging his sword at the severed head Mm-hmm. of a of an african soldier that has been taken who'd been taken prisoner by his ancestors um in, in the crusades and you know wolf is taking a swing at history and she's taking a swing at sort of daring do type pirate novels but it's also the fact that the the, the book begins with this racist scene mm. um and you know wolf or once wore blackface she did also edit and publish clr james when she was older and had had time to have a bit of a think about being a racist idiot um you know people are are complex but we need to tell the fullness of that story and as you say not just go oh well you know it you know we want casting to be open to everyone but it's not like the central casting was race blind in the in the play um but yeah i mean in 1992 one of the ways the film you know was talked about people did see it as a critique of empire they saw it as a critique of 
class uh, uh, in British history of property owning. You know, there were articles written about how it was, you know, the first British Marxist British mainstream fiction feature because she does give up the house at the end. And all mm. the way through, there is this criticism of British royalty and aristocracy as just like obsessed with fashion, obsessed with ownership and, you know, really silly. You know, Harry in particular is this very silly figure. And in a sense, what Orlando is is looking for is to get out of that pomp and circumstance mm. and to connect with what um, Greta has. You know, Orlando wants to be a poet. They want to be a poet of place. I, we can use all pronouns for Orlando. I'm really, I mean, this right. is something I'm really wrestling with in the book. Like, am I gonna? Um, is it gonna be chapter by chapter, or am I just gonna mix them up, or right. use "o" oh, as a pronoun? Like, what do you think? Um, uh, Orlando, you know, the first time we see, let's say, him, because at the beginning of the film, right. those are the pronouns he's using. That tends to be how I how I do this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's use this. So he's he's writing a poem and he's sitting under a tree. Like total it's a cliche, right? He's very, very rich. He's meant to be meeting the queen, and he's sitting there writing a poem. But there's something, there's a core of something there that he wants to connect to that isn't nationalism. It's mm. not the pastoral. Uh it's not, you know, the metaphysicals. It's like what what they get back to at the end is that moment with the tree and it's this visionary moment it's blake's angel it's walter benjamin's angel it's yeah. gay disco you know <laughs> there's a different story about not britishness as a nationalism but about the concatenation and coincidence of things that happened in britain due to colonialism and class and, and resisting both of those mm. that the film wants to tell and for me that's the like connecting that to undoing the gender binary is like that's what's ecstatic those things have to happen together right yeah so and as you say like for one film to contain all of that and then Wolf's theories about like the history of literature all the places that Orlando goes and all the people that they see you know that's a the film is 90 minutes mm. and it chooses instance from the book and it's like very carefully structured about time um really like acts of a play but you know making fun of this idea of the spirit of the age like how can the whole spirit of one age be death which is where it starts and then mm. it ends with birth um and you know blue black permanent is playing with time in ways that are really reminiscent of the of the gold diggers actually which it's also a story about um some a woman trying to remember her mother in that case you know julie christie sort of riffing on her character in uh dr Zhivago in some ways like or right. her you know the the daughter's character in dr Zhivago at the beginning he's like my mother i remember my mother but then she does remember her mother and she remembers her mother um being sort of taken away from her by her father who's a coal miner who's involved therefore in like resource extraction and and settler colonialism um and then she has to so what do i do with that well i'm gonna run away from the marriage market i'm gonna run away with a gorgeous black butch woman on a white horse sure um and we're gonna live happily ever after and remake creation with a woman welder the spark of life i mean it's just gorgeous how could people not like that film mm. julie christie running away from being everyone's darling yeah male critics loved it 
Um, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I think there was one who literally said, like, you know, you've taken my masturbation fantasy away. Horrific. So, you know, oh Blue Black God. Feminine isn't, it's it's not quite, you know, it's not engaging with star value and cinema in, in quite that way. Um, but it is telling the story of, like, how do we recover memory how do we work in the gaps of memory and that's both um you know always a micro story of like within one family but Mm. definitely in both of them it's like that bigger question of like in terms of the histories of marginalized communities that have been erased how do we build genealogies when so much has been deliberately taken away Mm. from us uh and you know in blue black permanent that's marked by the the trauma of um, Greta's death, which could be read uh, as suicide, um, could be read as sort of merging with the island, but, you know, either way leaves um, her children with, you know, a parent right. who seems like, you know, he's okay, but they do lose, they do lose a parent. And um, for Barbara, the, the loss of a, an artistic forebear, mm. and that's, you know, who she's really looking to reclaim is to say you know as an artist i have this history of of artists behind me and you know so i mentioned Anne scott moncrief as one of the young women writers who were around the rose street poets and no by tate who wasn't so much part of that group because she said she didn't feel that she was very clubbable she'd like rather sleep in her car and look at nature than sit on a man's knee in a pub and laugh at his joke oh you're so clever yeah (laughs) So, um, you know, the uh, two other figures were her sister-in-law, Alison Leonard Tate, who was a poet and newspaper editor who died very young uh, in childbirth. And there's a, a incredibly heartbreaking poem by Tate about Alison saying, like, you know, as a doctor, I should have been able to save you. Um, and then also Stella Cartwright, who was a, a poet, also of Tate's generation, who died in 1985. These three very magnetic and charismatic um, Scottish women writers who were always um, seen as subservient to the better-known men, like Norman McCaig uh, and Edward Muir around them. Um, And people often say, like, oh, you know, Tate was so isolated. She wasn't close to any of the filmmakers. She wasn't close to any of the writers. But she had, like she knew these like incredibly brilliant writers who just Mm. you know were facing that struggle of like being a wife being a mother being a writer and Tate had opted out of some of that and was making that path for herself and she sort of splits you know that's the Barbara element and her friends are aggressor um and it's just a real love letter you know um from someone who's you know not a parent not married to artists who are and were saying like i see your struggle and i accept whatever way you you moved on that whatever way you dealt with that um and it has this you know people call them flashbacks but they're not flashbacks because they're not barbara's memories they're her memories of the stories that her mother told her but they're seen in greta's perspective and they have this intensity so probably like one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema is when Greta's on the boat mm. going back to Orkney. Yeah. And the she gets brought this cup of tea 
Mm. And she sits on the boat and you can tell it's absolutely freezing. The sky is like bright, bright, bright blue. The sea, it's like, you know, one of the rougher seas uh, around the British Isles. And there's just this vividness, this excitement. She's going, you know, it's complicated. She's like going back from her adult life to her, you know, the, the home of her childhood. She's going back to her dad who didn't totally approve of her marriage. She's leaving her like exciting autistic life in Edinburgh, but she's also got free from her kids to yeah. go and nurse her dad. So sandwich carer, shout out. And she's just, it's like there's a moment in between where she's just like, as you say, on the ocean and everything that you know that the sea means and she's holding this cup of tea i've never wanted like a food or drink that is in film as much as you know it's in you can see the chip white mug in your head and it's just this gesture there's no dialogue in that scene hardly this gesture between you know two locals two workers it just yeah it is a poem and it's also that state of creativity it's like we see her in, you know, that state where finally your creative brain can work and she's not running between her kids and the like male artist and, you know, listening to the news. It's just being. And that's mm. the end of Orlando as well. It's like, how do we have, Wolf, you know, coins that phrase, moments of being. Mm. Are the moments when we're noticing most intensely and we become creative people through, through doing that. And, yeah. you know, trauma blocks that poverty blocks that um microaggressions block that so these very very rare moments Mm. um and so yeah there's something just really stunning about about that for me um and how that moment of being relates to the films having this kind of play with Mm. time like well if you can have a moment of being who the fuck needs linear time straight time fuck it um i've just been writing about celine siama's petite maman yeah. A most recent film, which also is just like, yeah, time travel, I'll have that. How's it happen? I don't know. You run around in the woods, you slip in some mud, boom, you're at your grandma's house when yeah. your mum was a kid. I watched it with my six and a half year old niece, and I was like, Do you think they should explain? And she was like, Explain what? Yeah. You know, to her it just made perfect sense. Of you know, course. they're playing, they're playing. Yeah. So I want to see more films like this, you know, I, like I think the- that's really, yeah. The, the sort of relying on the intelligence or just the acceptance of an audience to just sort of accept what's going on. I mean, I say that, um, I, I did ha- have to do some hand holding, um, with some people through, um, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, where it's like, okay, no, we're, <laughs> we're in this time period now, <laughs> which, but maybe, maybe that, maybe that does help if you, if you're very familiar with the story and, and mm. the novel. I, I don't know. But with something like Petite Maman, I just think that that's absolutely essential to it is, is that sort of, that children, children just accept. They don't question necessarily mm. that, that, and I think that that's what Celine Sciamma is trying to do in that film is recapture that, that, that sort of inherent acceptance. And the way that Wolf writes the, the shifts in, in Orlando are very similar. That sort of, mm. um, you know, we shall use um she for he and you know and that and that and that's it that's how it's gonna go from I mean, now on you just have to not, accept it yeah and that not just be the official grc just like right. a big quote from virginia Wolf. i mean that would like take all the heritage boxes right? <laughs> you put yeah, the pronouns like, in as you want them it should well, just be, so we shall says, now like, use we'll, we'll let scientists debate this separately <laughs> they can, they, you know they can they, they can have their discussions <laughs> 
um, I don't care because that's just yeah. what happened. That's um, what happens. We'll play a little trumpet as you come out. So you get yeah. like a little, you know, it could be some yeah. brass from a Beyonce record, like, you know, mix it up, choose, choose your brass. Um, yeah. Choose your yeah. horns, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and, you know, part of the thing with Petite Maman is it's like, why can't film just be moments of being? Like, why can't right. it call us? into presentness into yeah. communion and I, I think all three of those filmmakers mm-hmm. sort of share that interest in an ecstatic which yeah. i think is a little bit different than more than color <laughs> the ecstatic is like with co- yeah a capital no, e <laughs> yeah. um in the in the play of orlando um it's it's like that subtlety is completely taken away i mean we talked i talked the the, the the pantomime aspects i mean it opens with Orlando standing on a bed, raising his arms up um, so that his nightshirt pulls up to reveal a very large prosthetic penis. Um, mm. And later on, I'm pretty sure that that when the, the change happens, that we suddenly see Emma Corrin's chest and it's right. like trying to... So it's, it's doing it on a very sort of in-your-face, deliberate level, mm. but it, it's supposed to be comical. I mean, people laugh at these moments mm-hmm. because it's that the there's a comedy made of the change um mm-hmm. and these sorts of winks to audience that that Bartlett's putting in in order to make it you know Orlando for our times and mm-hmm. and, and so on that I just found incredibly egregious it was just like why why are you doing this this is not what is is going on in the book at all if you I mean, I want, I don't even know if Orlando's meant to be on the stage. I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced of that in general. Um, but you'd but also to, think in to, Orlando. To, to miss that point. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And Orlando for our times would specifically say this isn't about someone's genitals mm, or precisely. secondary sexual characteristics relating to how they identify and carry themselves in the world. Mm. Um, and you know, the film does have uh famously uh, a full frontal nude shots um mm. which was initially censored in japan due right. to the prohibition on showing pubic hair on screen in japanese cinema uh at the time um and it was the first film to um have that ban removed on artistic reasons mm. because the japanese censor board decided it was so important to establish the mm. genital identity Right. of Orlando at that point in time but that's not the focus of the scene it just happens that like full frontal nudity up to that point was only a trait of well European cinema right. so you know the it's a very mediated scene in which you know it it takes a while to build up to that it's first we see Orlando um undressing washing and then looking in the mirror and just you know the, that very famous line of you know you know um same person no difference at all just a different sex mm. and it's reflected in a mirror mediated away from us uh and then the film moves on mm. um and it's not presented as any sort of oh this is like the most authentic moment when there's no clothing on um and then later in the film, there's a shot that where Orlando's in bed with Shalmadine and it explores their bodies at like extreme close up. Mm. And you're not sure which body outline you're looking at. 
Right. Uh, and they kind of blend into one or mirror each other. Um, which, like, you know, when you're 14, you're like, what? It's happening! <laughs> this is not just Arnold Schwarzenegger with no pants on in Terminator. A reason yeah. that Terminator was very popular in the 80s. Like, we were starved. We didn't have, like, only fans. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. If you wanted to know anything about bodies, like, mm-hmm. you had to watch Art House Cinema. Yeah. But that moment at the beginning of Orlando, like, it, the stage play it replicates, like, the crying mm. game and what people are, well, are so I mean, critical. I was, I was going to say that, that that mirror shot, as you say, of the full frontal nudity is very much sort of aligning itself with the, the trope of a lot of films about um, trans people, um, mm. where you sort of, you do that to show a sort of dissonance between the body that you're looking at and, and the genitals that are being shown within that shot um which but in this case it's it's not a dissonance it's a no it's not a dissonance exactly um which yeah whereas i suppose that's the point of it in in the play although i would i would definitely say that sort of emma corrin's own identity and performance and the way that they move between the male orlando and the female orlando is so inherent to their performance in that character Mm. um that to add those dimensions is almost um an injustice to them it's like this this is this is what they are capable of doing mm-hmm. purely through their performance leave it at that it would work so well i mean if you do see it emma corrin is the reason to see it because i think mm-hmm. that they're able to almost navigate that better than than tilda swinton perhaps does um within the film um mm-hmm. although of course George Swinton's talked more about her identity later on in in um her career and um the sort of plays of gender that that have defined her as as an actor yeah i'm i'm going to throw another film into the mix <laughs> here that um has just was released on dvd by B- bfi a couple of years ago um, which was the film that sort of led Sally Porter to say, okay, I found my Orlando. Mm-hmm. And it's a film called Friendship's Death right. by Peter Wallen. So if yes. we're talking about like the visionary political, <laughs> you know, artistic strain in British cinema, Peter Wallen, of course, made a number of films with Laura Mulvey, including mm-hmm. Rizzo of the Sphinx, which we uh, already mentioned and friendship's death was a film he wrote and directed solo produced by rebecca o'brien who went on to produce for ken loach and it's set during black september in amman and bill Paston plays a scottish journalist who's there covering it and he meets um an alien robot played by tilda swinton mm-hmm. so swinton plays friendship who is a robot who has been built by aliens. So not a cyborg, but built to resemble a human because she, because they've they've built the robot to appear female on their understanding of Earth broadcast that this will afford some sort of mercy. Um, uh, she's being sent to Earth to tell Earthlings like to stop all because mm. they're heading in a bad direction and instead of landing at MIT she crash lands in Amman um, and becomes increasingly involved in the PLO struggle um, there 
So, yes, this is a British film made in 1986. It's mind-blowing. Um, and Swinton's performance as a non-human robot, a machine built by like monkey-like aliens to resemble a human to explore that gap and the film you know specifically talks about why the robot was gendered in the way that it was like in some ways it's it's very much like a, you know i'm sure it was an influence on under the skin but with yeah, a, non, no, definitely. a yeah. non-tragic ending you know yeah. um friendship is a much more self-directed cool ironic uh character um, you know, sometimes she's very impassioned about the rights of typewriters, uh, as yes. well as, you know, women and Palestinian people. And she just sees, you know, white, white people as having this like dominance relationship to everything. Mm-hmm. So when I saw, you know, Friendship's Death and then, you know, I asked Sally Potter about it and she was like, you know, yeah, that was the film that really, right. I was like, aha, that's my Orlando. It's someone who's like, can convey something that is beyond but the the humanity but that also is configured differently than um a human not just because of gender but because orlando lives for 400 years yeah of course which we somehow haven't mentioned yet because yeah. um, we just we're like yeah cool like my niece watching petite mama sure and the film just does that it's like mm-hmm. elizabeth the first played by uh quentin crisp the you know greatest queen britain has ever produced the only queen i recognize um so she tucks uh a deed into orlando's garter uh which then causes everyone in america to wear leggings and also orlando to live forever and be young forever to extraordinary um products of a piece of paper being tucked in your garter and it's a sort of joke about like the fantasy of british aristocracy thinking oh you know britain will be in charge forever and we'll own everything forever and deeds in perpetuity and blah 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 um but both this like the perpetual youthfulness and the immortality have this kind of this quality that is not that of a a human lifespan in in other films without any of the traits or traits of science fiction um gathering around it um and i think yeah that that makes it such a great role for an Mm. extraordinary actor because it is about performance it is about conveying that um i think if the film were made now it would be cast really differently Mm. um but yeah, in 1992, you know, I think part of it was also that Swinton was associated with with Jarman, uh, and that mm. merry band who were trying to break all the binaries in British cinema. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and there's a, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, there's another episode of the podcast um, with Madeline Pullman Jones where I talk about Caravaggio and uh, Orlando, where we, we we sort of spend the whole time pretty much talking about Tinder Swinton's casting um, in Jarman's films and and then in Orlando. Um, so, as a supplementary listen, I, I would say that's that's probably um, a good one for for people listening to this. Um, I I guess you know having said that. Tilda Swinton, you know, there is this alternate history in which she played Greta. I want to 
you know, talk about the extraordinary performance by Gerda Stevenson, who's a poet um, herself, and who read the script and sort of campaigned mm-hmm. uh, for the part of Greta and brings this incredible intensity and at-homeness. You know, I don't want to get into words like naturalism or authenticity, but in a bit like you said about Emma Corrin brings their experience to the role, their physicality, which is very mercurial, um, and their, you know, political experience as someone who came out as non-binary. I think Gerda Stevenson brings her experience as a poet writing in Scotland, someone who knows Orkney, um, someone who's moved in that world, who knows the kind of small Edinburgh scene. Uh, that is being referred to, he knows that, that landscape, um, and, you know, which is not to say that another actor couldn't. And I think like the Swinton family own half of Scotland. So, uh, you know, I'm sure Tilda Swinton's tromped on some, I mean, she pulled like a mobile screen through the Highlands uh, with uh, Mark Cousins. So she knows mm, that landscape. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, Again, and I think, you know, it's easy to insult it by talking about its freshness or naturalness or non-professional, like Gerda Stevenson was a professional artist and thinker, and it's a very competent filmic cinematic performance, but it has this connectedness um, that Mm. just makes Greta, you know, as I said, like in that scene in the boat, but also in the scenes on the beach, in the scene where she stops to write that poem in the rain, on the mm. stairs in Edinburgh and the, you know the film is called Blue Black Permanent after the bottle of ink on yeah. her desk so Dave was like oh what am I going to call the film a bit of a last minute decision apparently mm. um, but the only time we see Greta writing a poem in the film she writes it in a pencil in the rain where obviously right. it will wash away and so maybe I could just mm. read a bit of the poem no that would be wonderful thank you so um, I'm reading it uh, Lillian can see it and enjoy it <laughs> but it's in uh uh, an original Origins and Elements, Kate self-published um, poetry collection from 1959, published by Interim Edition, which was her company. And I want to thank Peter Todd for all the work that he's done keeping Tate's films alive as he programmed them when she was alive. Um, they're great friends. Um, and he's been such a champion of her work. Um, and this is the poem that's in the film, which so Tate writes her own poem into the film as uh, as Greta's storms i wished for a storm to test my strength against i cried for the gale force wind for electric explosions for sheets of rain i looked to the motionless wisps of cloud to the serene blue of the sky and wished them transformed i wished to be battered and to emerge triumphant i love the beating heat of the uncovered sun and the magic stillness of a wet evening after rain and the calm of the sea which makes it look like heavy melted deep coloured stuff But meantime, through it all, I crave the wave beating, lashing the untamed earth I live on, and the screaming of the wild atmosphere I live in. The violence of it pumps my blood faster. So, the FA may have thought they were getting, like, the quiet granny of British (laughs) cinema. But as Ahmad wrote, she said she wanted storms and she delivered one. That film does sweep through cinema like a storm. And I hope that, you know, in the the way that Orlando did 
has tenaciously clung on and you know it's now celebrating its 30th anniversary there's a 4k restoration that's going to be released um and that i hope after some will have that after life um that blue black permanent can be part of their travels as well and it can become as key a part of how we talk about british women's cinema how we talk about british quote-unquote regional cinema how we talk about scottish cinema and orcadian cinema more orcadian cinema orkney pride we love um which is a, a brilliant group that does screenings uh at the cinema in kirkwall so shout out to orkney pride um yeah i hope it can you know in the same way as it circles back and brings barbara brings greta to life that yeah. we can bring it into our present as well yeah definitely Thank you so much. That was absolutely wonderful. And thank you for reading the poem so beautifully. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm 90% a poet and only 10% a film person. So. <laughs> that was Listen to Lillian, the British cinema podcast. It was hosted and produced by me, Lillian Crawford, and my guest for this episode was So Mayer. You can stream and download episodes of the podcast, old and new, on all the usual channels, including Apple and Spotify, as well as via the Substack blog. Thank you for listening, and toodle pip.